Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Welcome everybody. We'll come to order. My name is uh, Ben Kaznoka. And on behalf of Anne Duane, Eric Tornberg, and everyone at Village Global, we're delighted to have you uh, here today. Um, we aspire to operate our venture firm as a network, as many of you know. Uh, and this event where we bring together founders, network leaders, and some of our LPs of the firm is uh, one manifestation of our commitment to doing this. Um, many of you are longtime friends of ours. For those who are new to Village, um, we're based here in the Valley and backed by people like Jeff Bezos, Sarah Blakely, Bill Gates, Mike Bloomberg, and of course the one and only Mark Pincus. And this evening, we're uh, excited to hear from Mark. Mark's a longtime Silicon Valley entrepreneur, original pioneer of the social networking era, an incredibly successful founder CEO of Zynga. He's gone from zero to billions and lived to tell the tale. Tonight's format, uh, I'm going to ask him some questions, and we're going to do a few segments of Q&A. So there's actually going to be a bunch of Q&A today. So if you have a question for Mark, you'll probably have an opportunity to ask it. Twice in the conversation, I'm going to go to all of you in the audience, and we'll have more of a town hall format. Um... Immediately after the fireside chat, we'll have a networking reception, and pending the weather, we might be able to go out in the terrace for the reception. If you'd like to tweet anything from today's event, you can find us on Twitter, at Village Global. Without further ado, let's welcome Mark Pincus. Mark, welcome to uh, Village Global. Thanks. And my mom's here somewhere. Uh, All right. Right in the front. <laughs> the most important person in the room. She couldn't convince my daughters to come. So. <laughs> um, well, for those of you who are uh, our founders in the room, uh, and I was just telling some founders downstairs, uh, Mark is an investor in your company. So we're uh, indirectly through Village, of course. So this is a really special gathering to bring together somebody who um, is a backer of Village and, and thus a backer of you all for a, an intimate conversation about entrepreneurship and success. So we're going to go through a range of, of topics and then, of course, uh, field your questions. Um, Mark, you said, quote, a lot of people were feeling sorry for me in 2007. Um, you started Zynga in 2007. Tell us about that quote and tell us about the founding story of Zynga. Sure. Well, <clears throat> so... The context in 2007 is I had previously founded uh, Tribe.net, which was one of the first three social networks, which you wouldn't have heard of today. It's part of the problem. Um, and, and I kind of stubbornly stuck with this one wrong idea on Tribe and failed. And, and then I spent some time in what I kind of lovingly call the abyss, where as an entrepreneur, you don't know what you're going to do next, and you're like kind of wandering the planet, um, wondering if you're going to work again or do anything useful. And while I was in the abyss, um, I started to realize that, that, that I really love ideas, and I love constantly coming up with new ideas for services for, to bring to people and see if they like them. But the problem I saw with Tribe and the world up until 2007 was in order to do that, you had to build a website and a company and get investors and all these things just to get up to one shot on goal, one idea. 
And so I was working on, my way around this was to buy out CNET. And I thought, okay, if I just owned something that had um, 30 million users, I could come up with all these ideas and test them against a, a somewhat captive audience. And so I was going to all these meetings for like a year in New York with bankers and private equity people. You're trying to buy CNET? To buy CNET, yeah. <clears throat> and, and it was super boring. And there was nothing fun about it or interesting and just the same thing over and over. And it was, they were somewhat interested, not super interested. Um, but so then, you know, one day I heard late in 2006 that Facebook was going to open their API up. And I thought, okay, I can get everything I was trying to get with like $3 billion of CNET um, here on Facebook. And they're doing the hard part and I just have to be on this Canvas page. So, so I had this deeper intent that, that I had really built around wanting to have a, a format that I could test lots of ideas and get to a large audience without all of the painful hard work that I had with Tribe. Um, and then I saw that possibility with, with Facebook. Unfortunately, um, there was a whole rash of other apps at the same time which were really silly. So there was all of, if you remember, the sending someone a drink and the super pokes. And, and so it wasn't seen as a very respectable thing to go build an app or even a company around Facebook apps. You were an investor in Facebook. I was right? an investor. You were one of the first angels in Facebook. Yes. So you, so you knew the company well. I knew them well. But, but so it's the reason people felt sorry for me, to answer your question, is that, that I was like 41 years old. All of my friends and peers were like a partner in a venture capital firm. or They were doing something that seemed like a lot more useful and important. And they're like, really, Mark? Like, that's all you can come up with is to build these dumb apps for Facebook. And so people just were like... Wow. Okay. You know. So, and it was me and a bunch of like college kids, hack. You know, hacking away at the like sitting at tables. So. And um, before too long, of course, you were um, hiring thousands of people, and and the company was incredibly successful very very quickly. What did you believe at the time of founding Facebook that others did not, or what what was your unique insight that allowed you to to, to tackle well, something? Well, at, at the point of founding Zynga, so. Facebook founding is a different question. Yeah. Uh, but the point of founding Zynga, it's, it gets to something that has become kind of an entrepreneuring strategy for me that, that I encourage you all to think about, which is um, really looking for something I've started to call the mature market phenomena. Mature markets that everyone, that's already big and it's over, are actually amazing places for all of us to go and innovate and, and think about new ideas. There's already revenue, there's already customers, there's already buying behavior, and maybe there hasn't been innovation in a long time. And I looked at gaming, and, and I think this will, you'll have to suspend your disbelief to go there with me, but in 2007, gaming was a crappy business. It was declining, it, the casual gaming was the worst. I mean, web games were like crazy taxi with like, crappy ads around it. It wasn't even a top 10 internet consumer activity. So no one was doing it on the web. And then all of these big, you know, console gaming companies were in decline and bare, it was very mature. But I looked at this and thought, this is a lot like search when Google showed up. Google was the 55th search engine, not the first. 
It was search was over. Like, what are you doing here? Like, this is Excite, Lycos, and Yahoo. And Google showed us that there was a level of innovation in search that would make search something different in our lives. Similarly, games is not yet as big as search. I think it may one day get there. I mean, the, as an industry, but my the, the thing I believed in was that adults actually we all had a latent interest in playing games, but that they the industry had just taken a left turn and never made games that were accessible to us, fit into our lives, and actually gave us anything valuable for the time we gave to games. It asked too much of us and didn't give anything back. And so my belief was that if we made games um, accessible to people, social and useful, that it could be uh, one of the top adult pastimes, mm. which now sounds like really obvious. But um, but that was the big belief. That and the only way I was able to prove that was Facebook opening up because at the time, you know, to get to a large audience, you had to get shelf space at Walmart or something. Mm. And so so really, this was. Mm. Um, it couldn't have been proven without Facebook. Yeah, and fa- fascinating to think about the upshot of going after mature industries and 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 believing that a trend can be turned around, um, uh, contrarian and right. Um, you had already made some money at the time of starting Zynga, um, and Village Global wasn't around to fund you at the I seed know. round. Um, uh, how did you think about raising money in those early days? And uh, you know, all these founders, mostly seed stage, Series A. Uh, founders, based on your experience, raising at first a little bit of money and then eventually lots of money, and now being a public company, what advice do you have for founders on on working with VCs? Well, let's see, lots of different things to share. Um, you know, one is I I think through different experiences. I I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder at that point. I I had. I was cynical about venture capitalists and and about whether they really added value and and I was cynical about the whole dance that we do with investors and I thought everyone's kind of lying to each other and the the founders are lying because they say what they care about is control but then they take the deal that gives them the best valuation and then the investors were lying because they would say you know that they cared about Valuation, or they cared about the product, or they cared about the people. I'm, I want to, I'm about backing the right people, and then what they really cared about was like valuation and control. Um, and and during this whole period, I was lost in the abyss. I, I spent a long time thinking about the kind of company that I wanted to create, and I think it's really good for all of you to do that and to be very intentional and to think about what is the arc, what companies do you admire, and what kind of outcomes do you, would you like to get to if you can. And the reason I think it's so important is if you have the chance and you're in an environment where you can make choices about investors and we're not always there and we haven't always been there, it's, it's important to take that opportunity to really communicate that and really try to make sure you're aligning everyone's interests. And the more, and I like to say go slow to go fast, that make it harder for yourself maybe in the beginning getting an investor or at every stage but get people that want to be on the same journey as you that are aligned. Same with hiring. Um, you know, there's so many things we're trying to do, and we're like, okay, I can solve this one. I can get this CTO or this investor. And what I found was, so, so I would um, give investors a top 10 reason list why they didn't want to invest in my company. I'd say, 
Let me tell you the top 10 reasons you're not going to want to invest in Zynga. And if you still want to talk after that, cool. And we won't waste each other's time. It was like speed dating. And which I'm not sure that would work in dating. But, and, but they, they'd say, thank you for not wasting my time. I definitely don't so want to So what invest. were the top few points of the anti-cell? I, I, said, I said, I'm always going to keep control um, and be in the sense that I will be your equal partner at the table. And I kind of jokingly said, I want to protect investors from themselves. That I didn't <laughs> feel like investors who... Uh, showed up at my company at most once a month, and then they would go to a partner's meeting with people who showed up never a month, could actually make better decisions about the fate and future of my company than I could. I didn't think I should by myself, but where I had a chip on my shoulders, in previous companies, um, the investors had too much leverage and power and influence and control, and they drove things. And I just felt like I was dealing with this group of partners I actually never even got to talk to, and I'd be worried that go and meet more of the partners because they don't seem to understand enough about our business. And, um, and, and I'd had a company previously that went public and the VCs had no interest in the company because it was enterprise software. And at the point it was about to go public or they saw that, they said, we're going to replace you as CEO because you've never been CEO of a public company before. And that gave me a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. But So I had all these reasons. I, I also said, as I built the company and went through rounds, I said, I'm not going to share any of our financials with you until after you decide to invest. These are things that investors don't like oh, to hear. This, this reminds me, some of the network catalyst companies in the room will remember when uh, they met with Reed Hoffman and Reed's story of raising the Series A from Sequoia was he called Sequoia and said, I'm happy to give you the opportunity to invest in my company. Yeah. Um, now, of course, he had also done PayPal and you had done companies before, so perhaps people's leverage different points in their career. And you can sound, <laughs> yes, and you can sound arrogant. I, uh, my Sequoia story was... That I was sitting there, and believe it or not, I, when I was raising our first round, we were doing 200000 a month in cash flow and like profits, which is still kind of a novel idea, and growing quickly. And, and I was in front of the Sequoia Partnership, and I said I wanted to raise $5 million at 20 pre, which today is like a safe note, I think. <laughs> and, but it was a big deal then. What? And they said, Mark, how can you possibly justify that valuation. And I said, something like, if, if you're worried about the valuation, whether I'm at 20 pre or 15 pre or whatever, you're not, this isn't the right investment for you. Because if we're successful, we're going to build a large multi-billion dollar company. And it won't matter what valuation you came into this at. And so if that is the, the metric that's going to be the deciding factor for you, you should just decide now not to invest because we're not going to work out well together. So, so you ultimately raised from USV, Foundry Group, KP in, the, in those early rounds. What did, what did you see, or what was that partnership like, and, and so, the, so, any of those investors you'd worked with before? Yes. So uh, after, it's ironically, after I got no's from like every, like every investor, you know, nobody liked my pitch. You were successful with your auntie, so you yes. gave them 10 reasons, I, and they said, thank yes, you, we don't want to invest. We, I aligned interests that they, <laughs> they knew I wasn't their interest. Um, but, but I ended up with people like Fred Wilson and Brad Feld, who had backed me before, um, and, and they got like a screamingly low valuation. I was at 15 pre instead of even 20 pre. Um, but I, I got real partners, and, and I'd say 
people like Bing Gordon, who came in the next round with Kleiner Perkins and John Doerr, they were awesome, and, and they really were valuable in helping me uh, build the company and, and, I guess, re-inspired me in thinking that, that board members and investors you know, could actually add something. So, so Mark, you, you have a reputation of being a, a tremendous product thinker, product visionary. You taught a class at Stanford, I think, titled Product Entrepreneurian. Um, what is your philosophy of product management? Well, we spent a lot of time, because Zingo was, is such a product-centric company, I mean, not just that the product is the company, but we were basically launching a new game every month, which is kind of like launching a company every month and continuing to manage a, a huge portfolio of live games. And so, so the company was itself also kind of this Petri dish of experimenting in the science of product management, which I grew to love. It wasn't a science. It's just starting to be one, and I think it should be. And, and there was two fundamental principles that I believe almost all things in product management boil back down to, and, which is, and these, this may not sound intuitive. But one is... Are we using our engineering days well? So one of my objectives to be a great product manager was to deliver on the promise that 80% of our engineering days went towards a shot on goal. And that's not something you can perfectly measure, but the idea was to say, what can we do as product managers before this ever touches an engineer and, and anyone thinks about code to prove that this is worthy of their time. So how do we test, 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 link test, focus groups? What can we do to make sure that we're not wasting their days? Or in a consumer company, it's, it's a shame to spend you know, 200 engineering days on something that you consumers don't want. And so one of the core things I think you should try to solve for is delivering on that promise. So it, four out of five days of the week, the engineers five is, days, building a pro, is building product, coding yes. or whatever, so, versus sitting in meetings. Or, and it sounds really, really obvious, but it's really hard to actually get your organization to deliver on that promise. And you have to try tons of different ways to do it. Everything we did at Zynga was measured every thing we did was measured in engineering days because I felt like that was like, you know, the lifeblood of the company. If you walk into Zynga today, there's a neon sign that says, what will our players thank us for? Because I would start and end every meeting I could saying, what will our players thank us for? Because so often the product managers in trying to do their job are not asking that question. They're asking what can make money? What could grow this? What? So if we ask what will our players thank us for, then the next question is, well, how do you know that? So prove it. So, and if you deliver on that promise, probably on average, a good product company is spending 20% of their engineering days on something that's a real shot on goal. If you're 4Xing them, you can be wrong a lot more than they can. They don't have many you know, bullets in the chamber, and you have 400% of their bullets. The second principle is... Oh, can you just pause for one sec? Because I think yeah. the idea of what will our players thank us for is such a powerful, concrete way of expressing the idea of being customer-centric. Like, you would read all these articles about, say, Amazon and Jeff Bezos, prioritize the customer, prioritize the customer, prioritize the customer. But at some point, that can almost seem, you get numb to it. Yeah. It almost feels abstract. The concrete frame of what will our customers or players thank us for really focuses the mind in, a, in an interesting way. 
And it's hard to fake it on yeah. your answer. And believe me, I've had product teams that their number one thing, you know, in words with friends was to add an ad unit. And and I made them on the spreadsheet put the answer, what will the players thank us for? And they really wanted to build that ad unit, so they had to put something and said, Well, you know, when we make more ad revenues, we'll have more money to spend on things our players will thank us for. <laughs> that doesn't count. They're not gonna thank you that you made more money and you're gonna help them in the future. Um, so okay, so principle number two. Okay. The the principle number two, which is at odds with principle number one, is that we need our product teams to go after bold ideas and and be bold. Because if you just have principle number one, as we've done over time at Zynga at times, is you end up just doing mouse nuts. You end up just doing, if you have to prove that that was a well-spent engineering day, you're going to go after really little ideas that you can prove really quickly and easily. And the problem is, because they're low risk, you, 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 create a, you can create a risk-averse culture. If everyone's delivering on 80% was a good idea, then no one wants to take a risk because you've built a system that doesn't tolerate being wrong, right? So what do you do? So you have to, at the same time, build in structurally incentives for teams and requirements for teams to do things that, that act in bold ways. And, and that gets to this, it seems like, like you know, we're pulling in different directions between being data-centric mm. and trying to go off of our intuition. Mm. And, and, you know, you I mean, because bold, being bold is often in conflict with uh, what the data might say or data well, thinking promotes iteration. How do you measure bold? You know, how do you, so what most organizations suffer from teams at, that want to be at one extreme or the other or both. They're, and I was just talking to CEO of Expedia and he was saying, yeah, this is, this is one of my biggest issues culturally is mm. you've got teams that want to build very, very small ideas and it's very, very well documented and they've got their whole program for the next year done and there's no room for anything different. Or they want to go after this big, bold idea that can't possibly be proven and it's going to take two years or a year before they ever put it out. And so what do you do? You know, How do you solve for both? And so we invented this idea um, called Bold Beats. And the idea of a bold beat was... Beat, like B-E-A-T? Yeah. Like, By the yeah. way, we're going to take questions in, two, in a minute, so okay. to get to start thinking. So, so Bold Beats um, is this idea, how do we give teams permission to go after big, huge ideas today or even require it? And the idea was, can you take a gigantic idea and boil it down to, to something pretty small and isolated that you could build in a month that has goals that it's, you can put it out there and it will get your customers to see this product in a totally different dimension, um, but not screw the product. Not like, Words of Friends is now checkers. What do you think? You know, it's got to be something that you can put out there and it can inspire the imaginations of your player, but if it's wrong, not torpedo the product. Mm. And I'll say where part of the kind of going back to first principles that is way beyond where you are at the moment. When I came back into Zynga, um, it, as I came back as CEO a couple of years ago, um, when the company was in trouble, I had to bring the company back to these ideas of bold beats and saying, mm. how do we get back to innovating on core mm. quality, you know, in in our core franchises? Mm. 
in order to you know reignite you know the engagement with our product. Any questions, reactions, comments on this, these product themes? Uh, and we're going to run the mic, so let's go up here, and then we'll take one other question, then I'll continue. Hikari, and introduce yourself and your company. Hi, yeah, I'm Hikari. I'm the founder of Omnikey. Uh, we uh, are a predictive analytics tool for designers. Um, my question is regarding your theory on product management and your experience in enterprise. So in a hits-driven consumer business, be bold, you know, you don't know what works, but how does that compare with your experience managing product when you're running an enterprise company? Great question. Um, some translate, I think, perfectly, and some don't. Um, thinking about you know, measuring lots of things in this unit of engineering days uh, really did work. When I was selling enterprise software, um, I was the top salesperson, as founders often are, and I had no experience in enterprise software sales. And Is I was support.com. Support.com. And I was kind of the head PM. Um, I, I felt like what, what your job, to me, the PM acts like a, a CEO, like a mini CEO. And the PM is entrepreneuring this. And in both, whether it's enterprise B2B or it's consumer, the PM has to be this point of integrating everything from and understanding the engineering constraints and getting your head in the customer um, where they are and thinking what's going to scale as a repeatable business. Because in the case of enterprise software, if you're just trying to listen to your customers, you become a consulting firm really quickly, as I learned, because they want you to solve their problem, and that's why they're paying you millions. They're not trying to pay for you to build a repeatable business as you want. So that part, I think, was similar in both. Um, you know, obviously, what's the benefit on the consumer side is you can you you can iterate and get feedback loops so much faster than you could on the enterprise is part of why I wanted to be in consumer because it's it took so much longer to be wrong on the enterprise side um, than it's consumer. It's actually an interesting advantage to some of the consumerized enterprise businesses yes. where you're selling like Slack, et cetera. You're getting the feedback loop of consumer where, with where the, the business model enterprise. Of enterprise is your consumer. Yeah, yeah. Any other questions or comments on the on this product, product stuff specifically? Um, we'll run up here in the front. And introduce yourself. Hi, Brendan Mulligan from Riot Games. How do you weigh the trade-off between doing the things that your customers will thank you for and building the ad unit, which pays the bills and hits those metrics that you need to hit? It's, it's a great question. We, early on in building Zynga, we said that there were three R's that we were always balancing, and it was reach, retention, and revenues. Right, Where reach was like virality, Retention was engagement and long-term, really what built the business. And revenues was a realization that we had to monetize so we could stay in business. And we said early on, we really want to grow through retention. Because the more we invest in retention, it it created the right incentives. Investing in retention meant investing in quality. And we found that... We could grow over time better by retaining customers than by being this kind of sinking speedboat about virality. And all of everyone around us was a sinking speedboat of trying to add more people faster than they sunk, um, which ultimately you know runs itself out. So we made the conscious decision: focus on retention. It's going to incent us to focus on engagement, on quality, 
And we do, we kind of were mostly retention. You know, maybe we were 50% retention and 30% reach and 20% revenues. And and we tweak it over time. But if, if we're ever focusing too much on monetization, we thought it was squeezing the lemon. It's like borrowing from your future. And, and your players or your users can feel it too when there's too much pinch. And so it's a virtuous cycle when you're able to grow without that pinch and you put less pinch and then it's, it goes the opposite way against you. Yeah, and I, I feel that pinch on Facebook Messenger when it asks over and over again if you want to turn on notifications. Yes. Um, it's the most annoying. You see in all these social networks where you can you know some PM is turning the dial trying to hit some metrics, yes. but, um, but there's nothing to, to uh, thank them for as a result of that. Mark, um, <laughs> uh, you've done things that um, few founders have done, or your journey has been unique at Zynga. Um, you founded and were CEO of the company. Um, and I was watching some interviews with you over the weekend, and you, you, you told somebody when you started the company, I want to be CEO the whole way through. I've, I've been a founder multiple times. This is the company I'm going to be CEO of for the rest of my life or something like that. And then you left the company, and we're not CEO, and there have been a few different CEOs. You came back, and currently you're chairman and not, not CEO, and the current CEO has been there for two or three years now, um, and, and it, the company's doing, doing well. Um, but tell us about that journey um, and... How did you decide to step back, and how did you decide to step back in and take control again of your of your baby? Well, this is you know a good problem and way beyond you know I think where you guys are so far, but but you'll face this, and there's I think that we all have to ask ourselves as you build a bigger and bigger um, company, a bigger footprint, and you have more investors, more employees, customers, ask yourself. Am I the right leader for this next chapter? Um, and you can lead in a lot of different ways. You can still be a leader, a spiritual leader as chairman or chairwoman, but you don't necessarily have to be in the seat as CEO, but it's very tough to figure out. And in my case, uh, we, we had to all of a sudden make this very rough transition to mobile, and it seemed like we needed a different strategy to win on mobile than what we had done on the web. And at the time, it seemed like you needed to, to get these blockbuster hits that were what had driven the traditional game industry, and mobile at first looked like that. And so I said, you know, maybe someone else can do a better job. I, I don't have any experience in really high production value, um, <clears throat> really expensive production games. We went out and recruited the best uh, most experienced CEO in the industry um, to come into the company. It turned out, not by his fault at all, that that strategy was just wrong. That the company was betting it all on a whole new slate of blockbuster games at a time when it was becoming more and more apparent that almost no new games were working and it was incredibly risky and they were doing it at the expense of our core franchises, which were really in decline. The traffic, the revenues, the people were leaving. Uh, I mean, all of our talent was leaving. And it's very tough as founder and chairperson to go against everybody else. But that's your jobs. You know, your job is not to be liked and to be popular, even to be respected by your industry. Your job is to make sure that you deliver this child to be this flourishing, amazing adult with a really long life ahead of them. And 
you need to stay true to that future opportunity and that legacy of what you've done and not to being liked. And, and so for me, I, I had to um, be in a position where I disagreed with the management team and the board for a fairly extended period and kind of, you know, put my day job where my mouth was and then go back in as CEO um, in order to take the company through this transition. And it was really, really brutal. Zynga was on like Fox Death Watch. And um, it was, you know, <clears throat> it, people like, I can't what, believe it's the Fox Death Watch. Oh, there's it's the Fox. Is they, it Fox? they have like a company Death Watch and you don't want to be on it. <laughs> and you can Google it. We were on, I had learned about it once we were on it. Um, but, you know, our stock, there was not a lot of confidence in me. You know, I, I came in as CEO and the stock went down to trade for like cash in the bank. We were like $1.75 and, you know, employees were leaving every week. But what I had to do to, to get the company back to strength was go through this turnaround playbook, which we're now seeing a lot more consumer internet companies go through this. And I think of it as these as reinventions, not turnarounds. Because I think turnaround gets it wrong. You're not turning around these companies. They need to be reinvented for where the market is today. But these aren't like old newspapers that someone is saving. This gaming is a growth market. Can, can I just go back for a sec, Mark? You said you, so you're on the Fox Death Watch, which we're all going to look up to see the state of that. But I'm not um, exaggerating. Really. Um, I mean, how do you, because for, for most of the folks in this room, you know, we're experiencing um, a Series A investor saying no to our pitch over and over again, or you have five employees and two just left, right? It's a smaller scale, but the emotions might be very similar, right? These sort of body blows. How do you, how did you, and, and for you, it's very, it was very public, right? You're getting attacked. These articles are coming out, or, you're, or the stock, it's a little of stock price, he said, drops. How do you sort of absorb that um, emotionally? And I, I know you're a very introspective person, how do you, um, like, were you keeping a journal during all this and writing down your, your, your true thoughts or confiding in, in somebody who was sort of helping you deal? Um, so, let's see. So, first, you, you have to get to this kind of, you have to get conviction that, that you're doing something that, that is right and it's for a higher purpose, which is that you've, and you got to not come back and question it. So, okay, I'm putting everything else on hold, and I'm going to dive back in, um, and this is worth saving and fixing. And, and then you have to start to realize that not everybody around you is ready to be on that journey. And so the first thing is making sure that you're, you have the right energy around you. And, you know, there's all these people who didn't sign up for that. They joined your company, you know, they joined our company just before the IPO. And now we're trading like way below the IPO. They didn't sign up for this. No one around them seems to be high-fiving them that they're at this company that's on death watch. You know, Thanksgiving was tough. Everyone comes home, really comes back, really sad. So, so the, the, you have to realize that you got to just let them all go. And, and I, and I, and Dan who's here would, come in, he was working with me, and he'd say, Mark, you got to go talk to this engineer or PM or designer because they're having a crisis of confidence and they're going to leave. And I did for a while, and then I was like, you know what? Focus on the living, not on the dead. So, so <laughs> you get pretty, you know, you get pretty, you triage it, and you say, all right, you know, I got to the point that I was like, 
you know what, if you're questioning if you should go, you should just go. You know, you're, I've seen this movie before. If you're questioning it now, in three months you're going to go, let's save both of us, just go now. And, and it set me free energetically because I wasn't walking around like trying not to make eye contact with people. Like, are you going to leave next? Are you, <laughs> like, if you look a little down at your feet, I think you're leaving. So I was just like, screw that. And you start hiring new people who think it's awesome that the stock is so low and they're getting it, you know, at the, at the ground floor. Um, and they're, they have fresh energy and they're ready to be on, on a new journey. And how do you get through it? Um, I don't know. You just, you, you, you kind of take each week. Were you, were you candid with your investors and board about yes. how you were really feeling? I've always found that the truth sets you free and being your most authentic place and not trying to be cool or not. I, I don't try to portray, you know, a whole lot of confidence that I don't have. I think actually professional CEOs do a better job and I could do better at that. And you've had an executive coach most of your career. Um, do you still today? I do. I, I've worked with this really kind of full kind of life strategy coach uh, for probably 14 years. And, and what I find is just creating space to process stuff. And, and in a very broad way, I, I think executive coaches are great. However, I feel like in a way, any material will do. I think if you're processing whatever is going on in your life, I feel like it just helps you gain more self-awareness and that helps you read situations better, read yourself better, and start to build a life practice of being more first understanding the emotions that you're going through, maybe writing them down, processing them, then you know, communicating those emotions, not expressing them in ways that you don't intend. And then I think going through that then makes you better at seeing other people who are going through these patterns that they're not in touch with their emotions or whatever. There's so much that goes on inside of how we all deal with each other in companies that's the same as other relationships in our life. So I think just having that room every week to be processing things so you and, talk about business and life with yeah, this person? Yeah, and and a lot of times talking about like getting aligned energetically with whatever it is is coming up. And I'll give you one example where this was really strategic for me, which how I met Bing. Um, I had to go into EA early on. We were building a whole bunch of games, which were very basic uh, board game kind of things that we were putting up. And they were a lot like these Hasbro games, which EA had the license to. So EA had me come in, and at EA they had every person who was in who was a lawyer had a card that said business development. So you're really meeting with their lawyers, and I think they know you won't go meet with a lawyer. You'll meet with business development because maybe that'll be a good opportunity for me. No one <laughs> willingly goes and meets with the lawyers, you know, without a lawyer. So I went into a room full of these business development lawyers and <laughs> lawyers business development lawyers, and, and I spent time with my coach to get energetically aligned with this, and I said, I know what they want to talk to me about is suing me and all this stuff, but I'm going to talk to them about the, the future of gaming and how Zynga and social gaming is the Walmart that EA needs, and, and I'm going to talk to them about this future and just sell them on this vision. I don't care if it's what they want to hear about. It's what I want to sell to them. And I'm just going to use my airtime to sell that. 
Luckily, this guy, Bing Gordon, who was one of the founding team members of EA, ran into one of these business development people in the lunchroom and said, what are you doing? Oh, we're going to go meet this Zynga guy and make him take his games down or make games for us or something. And Bing's like, I'll tag along. So Bing walked in. I'm giving this pitch to a room full of like angry faces about this vision for the new Walmart. And Bing happens to be there and he takes over the meeting. Has anyone here pitched Bing or no Bing? Okay. Okay. Just, just a couple. Yeah. He's quite a character. Bing Gordon's amazing. And until very recently, he's been on the board of Amazon. He helped come up with the idea for Amazon Prime. Um, he's an amazing uh, friend and, and, and coach and idea generator uh, you should meet. So Bing takes over the meeting from the lawyers. And it's like, yes, I've been waiting for you to come here. And he'd been saying for five years, someone's going to come in who connects the dots on all these different things. And I happened to like be the one that walked in and said that. So that led to Bing just showing up at our company. And eventually he's left EA and went to Kleiner and invested. But by getting you know energetically aligned with... And the alignment was the po- basically positivity. Right. Instead of like getting ready for this fight and meeting them you know, where they wanted to go, I went where I hoped they might go. So speaking of meeting people where they want to go, you were telling some of our founders earlier today about how you managed your relationship with Mark Zuckerberg because Zynga was built on top of Facebook initially and meeting him where he was. Any any lessons or, or anecdotes from the, the weekly meetings that you and the other Mark had <laughs> as you were building Zynga? Well, what I, what I was saying to your other, some of these founders, was on the question of like how... How do you go about dealing with somebody where you're you're on their platform and you're highly dependent or a really important sales relationship? My my answer that I went through was to to meet that person where they are and think about what what they care about and what's what's the most important things in their world. These are like really obvious, but. But the people, deepest truths often are obvious. People don't do this. You'd be surprised. They're expecting you to walk in with your laundry list of ass. And they're so wary for that. And when you don't do that and you show up and, and your ask is trying to understand what's the biggest challenges they're thinking about and give, being if you can be a source of truth for them that they start to trust, then you can build a different kind of relationship. And, and that's what we did. We, we had... A really good. We still have a really good trusted relationship, and when you get to a point where someone feels like you have their back, and it's usually in the moments where no one else has their back, or when it's really not in your interest to be there, that that you can kind of prove that that. What, and what insight did you? What truth telling about Facebook did you have insight into that you could tell Mark that he um, wasn't hearing from his own team? I mean. Uh, there's, it's not always truth people want to hear. So um, even in the last couple of years, I, I encourage Mark to think about what's, what's really going on with the engagement with the big blue app. And even though their metrics aren't showing necessarily declines in U.S. usership or engagement, I said, you know, maybe you want to try to look for other indicators behind those that there might be some weakness in that engagement model that you're seeing, that the metrics aren't yet showing you. And I gave an example of Farmville where Farmville 
when people were playing Farmville, we had a net promoter score of like a plus 35. The day after they quit, our net promoter score was like minus 50, okay? I mean, just for perspective, like the IRS is minus 15. You know, Comcast is like minus 20. And so this is so like... So after they quit playing Farmville? or Yeah. What? Okay. So the day after they quit, they hated Farmville. Got it, got it. <laughs> and, and so it, we, it's a sign that maybe this was starting to be like an addiction. This was starting to be something that they didn't feel good about. Like, I don't... I'm happy I quit potato chips or cigarettes or... So, so when... Even though your engagement looks great and your net promoter score looks great, the insight I was trying to share with them that I don't know if it's true with Facebook, but I said maybe you go and start measuring the change in mm. opinion for people after they quit Facebook. And if mm. it's violently against this, mm. it might be a sign of underlying weakness in your engagement in your product. Mm. And and Mark keeps his own counsel, you know, he doesn't need anyone, you know, he's really brilliant. I mean, we've, I think, seen. He's not maybe lauded as much today, but, um, but, so, he'll say, interesting. That's all he, right? That's all he ever said. Interesting. But, but behind that, you know, he's processing it, and, and if you're giving him something that's a good idea to help him with this, you know, it's, it's a gift. Mm. Um, I, I mean, the way you build relationships and alliances with people are, you know, over time, doing things for them that don't have an obvious transactional payback loop that show you want to invest in the relationship. And that's that's like with Reed Hoffman. Question, questions for yeah. Mark or, or reactions or comments on anything we've talked about the last... Uh, we'll start with Rachel in the front. Maybe because Biopharma has its own sort of industry challenges and PR issues, I'm really, really interested in how founders like you and like Mark Zuckerberg navigate ethics and criticism as part of your journey. I think intellectually and emotionally, there's a lot to learn there. And particularly when you're making good decisions for your company, right? I worry that I will get lost one day in my own conviction for my company. I I worry that um, all of us are at risk of getting lost in the conviction we have for our company and our mission, particularly when we have to sift through ethics and critics uh, who aren't always fair and have to keep making those right calibrated decisions Um, I'd love to hear more about your journey. Sure. I think what's hard to deal with is that there's so many layers of perception and perception is reality over time that I think one of the hardest things is that you're starting, whether it's, you know, Mark with his dream around Facebook connecting the world or where I started, any of us, I think, 99 to 100% of us start with like really pure intent around, yeah, like today maybe it's more clear you can make money out of this, but but most people really aren't doing this because they thought this was like the way to make a lot of money. They they had some real desire to make a difference in the world and have a positive impact. And you do things that are motivated by that, but they have these other outcomes that that are shocking to you, like, you know, the Russian hacking or, you know, for him. Um, and, and it's really tough to circle back energetically and not be defensive and not, and I think Mark is actually amazing at it. Um, but and were to, you, how about when people get, became addicted to Farmville? I mean, were you expecting that and how did that make you feel? People well, it's, say? it's when you're like a victim of your own <clears throat> success and you're like, 
look, everyone's using this. And like, now all of a sudden, people are using it too much. And, um, and even we tried, we tried to get people to play for shorter periods. So we had energy mechanics that would shorten the time of a session because we thought we don't want people doing this too much. And then that became like the number one revenue driver was people paying to not stop when the energy ran out. <laughs> and we're like, or, but, you know, they're... So when, when, yeah. Well, but, but you, 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 no one plans for the, to be the level of success that some of these companies have been and where you start to matter culturally and, and you start to realize that you are accountable on levels that you never were ready to be accountable on. Um, and in the case of me, you know, we had these core values, one of which was to be a meritocracy. <clears throat> and, and I wanted to take that to an extreme. And so I said to every new employee, all the way up to 4,000 employees, you, my commitment to you is that you should have the same opportunity in this meritocracy as employee number five or ten. And I was bothered by this Silicon Valley, um, you know, culture that had built that you won the lotto if you were employee number 38 at Google. And I wanted to say, no, everyone should have the same opportunity. And so I challenged some of those things. And I, in order to do that, I, um, at, at some points, we went to employees that weren't adding value at where we had hoped and we imparted ways with them. That ended up being a part of a whole Wall Street Journal story that, you know, was super negative. And I had to look at that and say, but I had this pure positive intent in the beginning, but now it's seen as the, like I've done something worse and I think I was doing something better. And I think the hard part to come to terms with those is to, instead of getting defensive and feeling like you're misunderstood, it's to say, okay, you know, maybe, maybe I tried to do things too quickly that this ecosystem isn't ready for yet, and, and there was some organ rejection, and can I find the truths in this and get aligned around it and s- instead of kind of getting a chip on your shoulder and, and saying, no, they, we're misunderstood. And, and I, I don't know, with Zuck, I've, I send him notes sometimes, um, I try to send him notes when, when Facebook is in kind of the worst moments and when he's going in front of Congress and early Facebook people are coming out against the company. That's when I try to send him a note to say, you know, you've got friends and who are proud of you. Because I think that's when founders, you know, need to know they have friends. Powerful. Uh, let's go to Ryan in, in the back. Uh, Ryan Caldbeck from Circle Up. Um, I'd love to hear more about the most stressful times for you in the journey, particularly before the company uh, went public. Did the stress go up, down over time, and did you ever think it would fail before uh, it, it went public? There, there's such a fine line <clears throat> between success and failure, and I think we all are so aware of that. Maybe we're too aware of that, and maybe we shield investors from it. But I... I in the early days, I used to feel, I used to describe my experience as being on like a five-story high unicycle. And we kept adding another story. And, and one of the reasons that we kept raising more and more capital is because 
we kept, I believed so much in the opportunity. I wanted to be the biggest macro bet on social gaming, but we were spending so much on big data and employees and teams. We were just expanding, expanding, expanding. And if, if anything hiccuped, we, our OPEX was so big. We were always cash flow positive and profitable, but, but if anything didn't work, we, we could be killed by it. And so, so we really needed, even though we weren't using it, we, every time we double or triple the size of the company, we didn't know that it was going to work. And so I, I had, and look, yeah, we were, we didn't have a website. I mean, we, we didn't, now it's like, oh, you're an app in the app store and you're on people's phones. We were an app buried inside of Facebook. And, and if they changed one thing, which they did, you know, often, there was no way for our users to find us anymore. We were gone. You know, if your web browser was still open and the tab with us, fine. Otherwise, you turned your computer off and on and Facebook didn't have navigation back, we would just be gone. I mean, they're just all of a sudden. And this idea that all of our users had to choose to come back every day. They build habit over time, and we've seen that they have, but you don't know that's going to happen. So, so there was constant we probably more than most any other company we felt existential threats to our existence all the time um and and had that mentality um always and and then you know there was a very famous um moment uh, where we and facebook weren't sure that we were we had nothing signed between our companies i mean nothing there was no agreements at all and and we were a very big business together and and there was a moment where we had to come to some terms and it wasn't clear we would and and our engineers and teams were working uh, we literally were working 24 7 for a month building our own website and login and all this stuff because we had to be prepared for facebook to just take us down um in a day um so Yes, there <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are moments of stress. Um, just to piggyback, and then we'll go to some more questions. Mark Zynga scaled faster than almost any company in Silicon Valley history. You you had over four thousand employees in just four years, and yet today you say fuck scale. Explain what you mean by that. Well, which I have so much respect for the practice that Reed has built around mastering scale. Um, <clears throat> my point when I said fuck scale was. More that scale is not the objective. Scale is not the goal. <clears throat> Making our customers love our products is the goal. And my point was, you know, if you're picking between a hamburger from McDonald's, which today maybe no one's going to pick, um, or you're picking between In-N-Out Burger and One Shop Burger, you're not thinking, you know, wow, I'm so impressed with the team at In-N-Out because, you know, they've scaled now across the country, and did you know how big a company they've become? And they're not just serving me, they're serving hundreds of thousands of other people the you know, protein, animal-style burger today, and it's just great. And, you know, it's not great, but, but at least I have the, the comfort to know that they're serving so many other people, and I feel really good about that. Or, wow, my Uber didn't show up, or they're, you know, it says three minutes, and they're driving the wrong way on the highway, and they're actually 20 minutes. But think about how many billions of people Uber is serving. 
go Uber. You know, no, we're not thinking. We're not as customers. We want the best single experience, and we don't care whether it was delivered to us in a scalable, profitable way. We care that it was hand delivered in a way that was personalized and high quality and awesome every time. So my point about fuck scale, it's not about scale. It's about if you have to micromanage to deliver my experience and make it awesome, micromanage away. I don't care. If scale, it, it should be, I don't know if I have this right, but kind of an inverted pyramid that if scale makes it easier, if scale makes it a higher likelihood that you're going to give me a higher quality experience, if scale makes it more likely that you know your talent will be better and better used for your customers, mm-hmm. then scale is a wonderful thing. But what I experienced, and we just did it all wrong, was mm-hmm. by growing so quickly and ending up with layers, the thing that I was best at was what I spent the least time doing. And my best purpose was coming up with great ideas for experiences for our users. And when I'm spending my time doing everything but that, mm. scale isn't working for me. You know, I'm working for it. Mm. So let's go some it. questions. We had some questions in the back. Uh, yeah, we'll do Chris and then on this side. Hi, Chris Olson uh, from the Meta. We're an esports training platform. Thanks for your investment. Um, at the outset, did you consider Zynga to be primarily a gaming company with social aspects or primarily a social company with gaming aspects? And did that viewpoint change over the years? Great question. I would say 60-40 or 70-30. We were, we were focused on social first. And we liked the idea of social. We liked the idea of games as a new social medium. And that's what we spent our time talking about. And so when we launched poker, our poker game, there was nothing new about the, we didn't have new rules of poker. The only innovation that we had was, it was the first time that you saw pictures of real people at the poker table. And we built a way for you to join a table that your friends were at. And 25% of the table joins were people going to real friends. So we saw social networks as a cocktail party and we wanted to be this always on bar in this very quiet cocktail party that you could actually run and bump into your friends at. And then so many of our, the way we developed features was thinking social first. And were there ways that we could help you build your social capital? Could, we would ask ourselves, is there something we could let you do for and with a friend in our game that would change your real relationship? You know, form a new one, enhance one. Could we talk about what bucket are you in? You know, are you at the top that like they're going to pick you up at the airport or come over to help you move or whatever's the top of your social capital bucket or you're a fake friend on Facebook, but you actually wouldn't cross the street to talk to each other. And we talked about, could we through our game mechanics, you know, help you feel closer to people and move that. And, and that was what we kept coming back to, to innovate. We then went and looked at all these proven game mechanics that there was an incredible, you know, set of 20 or 30 years of that in the industry that we could then bring, you know, to bear on that. And and maybe elaborate, Mark, um, you have a a framework that you've coined proven better new and you, you tell entrepreneurs study what's proven in businesses that are already working and see if maybe slight tweaks or recombinations can, can work in in the case of the startup. 
and, and don't let your ego get in the way of thinking that that's not true innovation. In other words, recombination and iteration on something that it already works can be innovation and it can lead to great success. Say more on that. So, so I, I taught this class on product entrepreneuring at Stanford and I was only trying to get two concepts across and I, and I found out how hard it is to teach because I've, in the end, the students kind of just barely played the two concepts back to me and I spent the entire semester teaching these two concepts and they were really smart. So the only other possible solution, <laughs> I was not a great teacher. But, so it doesn't mean I'll give it to you in 30 seconds either. But the two concepts I tried to get across, one which go together was part of the journey that we're on as entrepreneurs and product makers is to separate our winning instincts from our losing ideas. So we have these fundamental instincts, like the entrepreneur I spoke to today who's, who has this instinct that we could use our physical space and airspace better in our rooms. He has an instinct about that, which I'm just guessing is right. But then we layer ideas on top of those instincts, which are probably wrong. So I had this idea in 2002, an instinct and an idea that maybe we could order a car, a taxi through our phone. And I went and registered smstaxi.com. And it was a really shitty, bad idea. And that's why you don't see it today. And, but it turned out that the underlying instinct turned out to be pretty world-changing eventually. So what year did you register? smstaxi.com? 2002. Okay. It's a little, um, little known fun fact. I'm you can sure look it up good. on, on uh, internet or okay. GoDaddy. So, <clears throat> but, so the question for us is, now that you've all taken this leap and it's too late to go back, how do you de-risk it? What can we all do that could fundamentally move your odds of success so that, in a lot of ways, the gift you can give yourself is a time machine? What if you could come back from two years from now and say, you know what, dude, your instinct about saving space was brilliant, but the way you went after it wasn't right. What would you do with that? Would you make use of those two years differently? Would you try four other ideas? What would you do with it? The what you could do with it can be guided by this concept uh, that I call proven better new. And also I said to your group of entrepreneurs earlier, the idea of proven better new in games is that you can take mechanics um, and you can, you can deconstruct a game or a product into the underlying mechanics and you can say, what's already been proven? And if it's already been proven, like in the game, take poker. I put out this social poker game. You know what? The rules of poker are proven. Even online, the idea of a table working, the way it worked, all that stuff was proven. Don't touch that. You're not going to probably have time to make the rules of poker better or, you know, 52 cards has been pretty proven. Let's not try 54 or 36. Let's just go with 52. So take all those things as proven. But is there something in this experience that you can polish and make one inch better. And the hard part for us as entrepreneurs is to realize that when you say, what will our customers thank us for? They're probably much more likely to thank you for taking something that they already love and make it one inch better than something that they've never seen before, didn't know they wanted, and trying to convince them that they want to love that. Not to say you shouldn't pursue new, novel, innovative ideas, but what if you walked your idea all the way back to what's proven? What if you said, it might be really far back if you're in the create space in my apartment business, 
But if you think differently about it, and, and I talked to uh, one entrepreneur who is thinking about a new approach to, uh, to hosting esports leagues for uh, game publishers or, or, or players. So go back and look at proven models where someone has either proven badly and failed, you don't want to do, or proven that they've created a framework for a B2B2C service around games and try to figure out what you can copy from that that's already been proven and try to isolate just what you're trying to do differently and test that. In, Steve Jobs had an amazing interview when he first came back to Apple, and he said the problem for the previous eight years, they were trying to make every feature 10% better, and they made the entire product 50% worse. And, and my example of what we did with Farmville was we had proven and better and nothing new. We just had better crops. We had better art around the crops, better math around the crops, and that was enough. And it's very hard for us as product makers. We all kind of want to be da Vinci, and we all want to be seen in the world for our amazing new creative ideas. The world usually doesn't really want something totally new, but they really want something that's totally better than what they already love. Fascinating insight. We had one. Let's take one more here, and then uh, we'll wrap up. I'm Allie. To use your words, I'm a uh, business development professional. Sorry. (laughs) You're not a lawyer, or you are? No, I am. (laughs) (laughs) But there's only one of me. There's many more of you. So so if you dial all your companies back to the beginning and you surround yourself with your first five or ten employees, or for that matter, in your personal life, you surround yourself with five or ten people, you know, who are those people and would you have changed anything or put a different way, if you started from scratch today, who are the kinds of people, who are those five or ten people that you're surrounding Mm -hmm. yourself with? You know, I can't say that I have a formula or a pattern because I think every time it's been a different organic path. Um, So I would say, though, that if I look for one common theme, it's I, I tend to surround myself with people who really challenge me um, much more than just accepting that what I say must be right and just being in execution mode. Because early on, I think we have to have such a dialogue because we don't have it right. And to challenge each other, challenge each other's assumptions constantly, are we thinking about this right? And is too much of our ego in this? And maybe there's something underlying this that we're missing, that's this instinct, and maybe this way that we've all been pursuing it's wrong. And and it's very tough because there's a desire to not rock the boat, and it's already so fragile to start something new that if you have people, it can be considered negative energy and really annoying that if someone's constantly questioning, like, all right, we just got to pick a direction and go. And if everyone's questioning the direction all the time, it could be really nuts and chaotic. So, so maybe if I can jump in, picking up on this question and with the last question, uh, Mark, we end all of our conversations with our LP luminaries this way. It takes a village to change the world. No one can do it alone. So who specifically, to answer this question, who specifically has been in your village over the last 15, 20 years that has been instrumental to your success? Uh, well, I, I, there's been a lot, but I'd say two people stand out. I'm going to give you two. Uh, so one is both of our uh, friend and uh, <clears throat> so much more, Reed Hoffman. So 
Reed has been kind of an intellectual sparring partner with me on so many topics for uh, more than two decades. And there's so many places where he's challenged me and my thinking uh, that, that have really helped me end up at a different place. I mean, going all the way back to uh, kind of the beginning of this when he and I were brainstorming about Web 2.0 and, and the social web and, um, <clears throat> and felt like there was something that, that we were seeing and both pursuing and challenging each other on that was uh, different than at a time that nobody believed in consumer internet. Um, but even, even now, there's, there's so much I get out of um, the way that Reed is, is so strategic about things uh, that I also try to emulate. And then Bing Gordon, who I talked about, uh, has been just a constant source of creative energy, and, and he has this, like, thousand-yard stare of pattern recognition that he's like this incredible encyclopedia that you can say, oh, yeah, Mark, that was Jeff Bezos in 2003, and here's the way he dealt with that challenge. And so he has this, like, crazy level of pattern recognition. Um, and also, I'd say from these people around me, I get, I get so much emotional support and so much... Um, Sometimes tough love, but but really uh, this feeling that that you it's really good to feel like you have people who are kind of in the trenches with you and where you've built you already know that that you have relationships that transcend you know whatever this company or transaction is that um, that you feel a bigger commitment to and. And I think I know everyone talks about like finding a mentor and that's important. I think that these more kind of peer level, maybe it's peer plus in some ways, but I think these peer level relationships where you can really find them and establish them are more useful and valuable over time where hopefully you're both getting a lot out of it and and you're able to find ways to help them uh, while they're helping you. And I think... um, I don't know. I, I've never had like a single mentor person that you know that I've been a follower of. Or so. Mark Pickus, thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, that was awesome. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.